You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Well, good morning. Ooh, okay. Hey, um, it's great to be here today with you and starting this new sermon series, How Grace Changes Everything, as we look at the book of James. <clears throat> now, this book is a whole 108 verses. That's actually pretty short. It's almost the length of a sermon, honestly. It probably could have been a sermon. Um, and of the 108 verses, 50 of them in this book of James have commands in them. So it's very blunt, very pithy, very to the point. Now, James, um, from what we know, is the half-brother of Jesus who wrote this book. And um, can you imagine being in Jesus' family growing up? You know, he's the goody-two-shoes, the perfect kid who would drive me nuts. My brother and sister drove me nuts anyways. But, I mean, can you imagine? He never does anything wrong, and it's just, and he thinks he's the son of God. Well, if you don't know, um, in the Gospels, James... Well, it says Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters, so we think James with them came during Jesus' uh, public ministry. When he started his ministry, they came to get him because they thought he was crazy, okay? I mean, seriously, it'd be pretty hard to believe that this guy in the flesh that you've been around and you've seen him eat and you've seen him sleep and you've seen him and all these things, I don't care how, perfect he seemed, that he could be the Son of God, the Messiah. It wasn't until after the resurrection, from what we can tell, and then it all kind of clicked, and James fell into place, and now this whole book is based on the teaching of Jesus, more on the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus taught than any other New Testament letter, and it's really based on the foundation of grace, Grace changes everything. Now, you might be wondering why we've got all these uh, frames up here um, decorating the stage. It's kind of a metaphor for what we see throughout this whole thing, that it's the framework of grace that lets us really put in perspective all the things that happen in our lives. It's not so much what you see, but how you see it, right? Two people can say the same, see the same thing and they think differently about it, and they, it's how they see it that makes the difference. And um, some people can, in fact, see, I mean, we all see the same world. Some people look at the world and see just randomness and chaos. I understand that these days. But also, some people look at the world and see God's hand in it. So which is it? And it's your perspective, your framework, and we believe the framework for this book, the framework for our lives, is grace. How grace changes everything. And the book of James is kind of a litmus test, you might say. It kind of shows where people are at and what their framework is, because with 50 commands, 108 verses, this pithy book, do this, don't do this, try this, don't do this, consider this, uh, stop this, watch out, um, it's easy to think and turn the framework into just a bunch of rules and the framework into just keep the rules and God likes you. And what Sam said before is so true. I don't care what you try to do. That's not going to work. Um, all our righteous acts, whatever they are, I don't care what they are, are kind of like, you know, it's just not going to be there. We don't get brownie points with God. Okay. You've probably heard that before. 
Rather, I think the right framework on the book of James shows that what James is doing is describing what the Christian life following Jesus looks like, how grace has changed everything. It changes our approach to our use of time, our planning, how we handle stress, trials, tribulations in life, how we look at conflict, how we handle our own desires that work inside of us, how we speak how we address each other, all of those things. He deals very practical, everyday, everyday stuff in this book. And it's all through the framework of grace. Okay? So before we begin, let's pray. Lord God, your grace has changed everything in our lives. Your grace, your love, your mercy, your resurrection, your death, the whole thing. Everything you did, Lord, as it changed James and turned him from someone who just couldn't believe into one who did and then lived that belief, Lord. We pray it does for us today, too. So open us, Holy Spirit. Be present in every word in this scripture. We thank you, Lord, for um, the whole Christian church here in this area, for all the churches and their different expressions that are sharing the gospel today. Be with those messages and create a movement here of your spirit that this area gives you glory, and our lives start reflecting what this book talks about, of how we love one another, care for one another, speak to one another, how we uh, plan our time, everything, Lord, how it can change everything, so change us today. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's get into the text itself, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's a little long today, but I think um, you'll see right away how it kind of all fits together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James, it says at the beginning, writes to the dispersion of the 12 tribes. Now, what is that about or what's going on? From what we gather in the book of Acts, 
As you know, on the day of Pentecost, thousands of people were gathered from all over the known world in all different languages on that day, but they were all Jewish or proselytes to Judaism that were gathered that day from these different languages and ethnicities. And that became the early church. 3,000 were saved that day. And I'll tell you, if we were there, probably the euphoria of that day and what was all going on was amazing. They gave of themselves. We're going to go through some of this stuff later in the next series in the book of, on the book of Acts this fall. Um, but um, you could see everything was just clicking. And yes, they faced some persecution. They faced some struggles. Peter and John were thrown into prison and beaten up, but they came out. They were filled with boldness. And then Stephen, who was one of the deacons of the church, was stoned to death because of his testimony. And it says right after that, a great persecution broke out in the church against the church in Jerusalem, and everybody but the 12 apostles were scattered and left. So the dispersion happened, and these people were scattered throughout Palestine. And I have a feeling the early euphoria turned into, hmm, questions, because now they faced economic and social persecution and struggles, and everything wasn't hunky-dory and not a-okay all the time. And so all of a sudden, they're starting to wonder with what they're going through, is it worth it following this Jesus, having broken away from some of the issues in Judaism, etc.? Are we, is this or what's going on? And so James deals with that right up front when he writes, consider it all joy when you face trials of various times. Now, if I had to summarize this whole section in this book into one sentence, maybe this is a good way to remember what this book or this section is about. It would be this, trials will come, but count them all as joy because God is good. Okay? That's the summary of what we're going to talk about today. So, some of you are in the midst of a trial right now, or a testing, or a temptation. The the Greek word is really all three of those, wrapped up in one way or another, okay? And you you just kind of limped into church today. You just kind of made it here. You're beaten up, you're bruised, you're struggling, it's just all swirling around you and you're wondering what's going on. And what's ever going on, whether it's economic, financial struggles, it could be personal struggles, it could be relational issues, it could be physical um, health issues, you, you name it, various trials. He doesn't kind of limit what those trials are. But I think there is also a spiritual dimension of what's going on with them. And that's what we're going to address today. And James gives us two ways to look at these trials in this text. Two frames that grace helps us look at these trials and two battles that we're all in in our lives. So let's look, first of all, at the first of these two frameworks or ways to look. And that is, grace views trials as a pathway to maturity, okay? So he says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hey, from your life experience, isn't this the way it works? How do you grow? How do you mature? You can get old and not mature. I think you've seen a few people like that, haven't you? Right. But how do you actually mature? 
isn't it through failing, <laughs> making mistakes, um, having things not go your way? I mean, isn't that the case? We grow through those things. We think we're right, and then we find out that we were wrong all along, and we've kind of been humbled by it all. I think we grow through. Does anybody grow or mature by having everything go smoothly in their lives and everything they want, they get? That's called childishness in the end. That's what you see those temper tantrums all the time. No, I want, I want, I want. And it's like, yeah, grow up, kid, right? You could see that. Well, adults, we seem to want to avoid all that. For some reason in the Christian life, we think we grow by magic pixie dust. You know? Ching, God, you know, God, here's a Christian. And a little sprinkling of the Holy Spirit, boom, and everything just automatically works in your life, and you just grow and mature that way. I don't think so. At least, that's not what I'm seeing. God doesn't just, ping, magic. It's the miracle of going through death and resurrection, as Paul would say elsewhere of facing that in our lives. It's not that we just believe, ching, and we soar, and everything's wonderful. This is no Peter Pan story. Here's a video, I think, that gives an analogy. Um, it's called Forge. That's going to explain to us what's really going on many times, I think, in these trials and temptations. Let's watch. piece of steel. This is what you're going to get from the rolling mill. This is what you're going to get in the shop that you're going to buy steel from. And what you can do with this is very limited. It, uh, it is what it is. But from a steel's point of view, it's very content to stay in this shape. But for me, as a blacksmith, I can't use this for very much. So I want to be able to make this into something that I can use. And I need to, to stretch it bend it, I need to twist it, I need to put holes in it, I need to put shapes in it to actually make it to do what I want to do. And for me to coax it to be something different, it requires heat. As soon as I heat this up to 1500 degrees to where it's uh, red hot, it becomes a ductile piece of material. And even though it will fight me, I can pound on this with my hammer against my anvil. And I can force this to change its shape. And I can force this thing to change its shape dramatically. And still, when it gets cool, it will be content to stay in the shape that I have made it in. You get it hot enough, and then you pound on it long enough, then you can make this into almost anything that you want.
blacksmith is doing is he's taking a piece of material and he's finding something useful that he wants and he's making the material with the skill that he has with his hammer and his anvil and his fire into something that has value and that has purpose and that I can use it for something. Now you might be feeling like life is pounding hard down on you, right? And that bl it's blazing hot, it hurts, it's uncomfortable, it's just difficult. And you feel like one of those pieces of metal in, you know, right now? Yeah. It's an interesting, the Greek word for test, trial, or um, temptation, it's all the same. It's pyrasmos. That's what it means. Pyrasmos. And what's fascinating is in 1 Peter 4, it says, it, it describes it as a fire. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also share and be glad when his glory is revealed. So it's not for your destruction, it's for God forging you into something that you may not want to be, but he wants for you. It's for your construction. It's for the masterpiece he's making you into. But boy, during it, it's tough. Now, Paul says it in Philippians probably a little more positively than that. He says this in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the end product. He has got a long-term plan for your life. It isn't a momentary issue that he's dealing with, but the long-term plan to mature you, to grow you, to make you into what he wants you to be. And the tests and the trials of life are a way, a pathway to maturity. Now, this takes wisdom because the world thinks that's the last thing you want is anything uncomfortable or difficult in your life. Everything's supposed to be easy. And so it takes wisdom. And that's why James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Wisdom has to be there to see that framework that it's really God's grace in my life. And I can consider it all joy that I'm going through a trial or a test. The second part of the framework is this. Trials reveal my need for God and his grace. Now, test me on this. See if I'm right about our fickle hearts, okay? When everything is going smoothly in life, right? There are times when that happens. When things are sailing smoothly, when you're just having a great time, when every... Um, Financially, you've got, you know, you feel secure. You've got it all. You've got the job. You've got the house. You've got, you know, you name it. You've got it, and you're feeling good. Tell me how. Well, what do you start thinking? Hey, look at what I did. Look at all that I'm accomplishing. Man, I'm in control. I've got it. Man, life is good. This is the way it's supposed to be, and good job, John. And by the way, 
you know, hey, do I really need that much time with God? How much time do I pray when things are good? How much time do I actually look outside of myself rather than just kind of enjoy my comfort and pleasure? This is interesting. In 1987, I went to Europe for my first trip, and we were able to visit with a family in East Germany two years before the wall came down. And one of the fascinating facts I found out, this was a Christian family. They faced economic persecution and difficulties. But I found in East Germany, 30% of the population were Christians committed to Christianity, to Christ. Then, after a few days behind the wall, we traveled to West Germany, and it's like we breathed an air of relief getting out of that oppressive communist government in East. We get there, and we find out 3% of the population (laughs) even show up at church on any given, you know, any time at all. They had it all. Everything was easy. Everything was nice. That's our fickle hearts. And somehow we think we're in control. We're on top of it. We've got it together. We don't need. We're fine. We're self-contained. We've got it. And then trials come in and strip us of that illusion. It is taken away. And all of a sudden we see our needs. We see how contingent we are. We see that everything that we've got is not something I, I am not in control It's all a gift. It's all a good thing from God, not of myself. I'm not really putting it all together. My plans are not what needs to be done in my life. I think Psalm 32, um, I love this psalm. I wish I would follow its wisdom. At the end of this psalm, it says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is God speaking. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Did that pastor just call me a mule? (laughs) Well, I'm calling myself the mule, okay? uh, And there's room in this pack for more mules, okay? We are just stubborn. And it's amazing how we will not do what we should be doing, if you want to put should on that. But, and it takes sometimes, uh, you know, being pulled this way or that way. And what God is seeking through trials, temptations in our lives is kind of like bending us, breaking us of our self-will, our stubbornness, so that it doesn't have to be that it's only... Th- and if you see wisdom in people who are older, who have matured, In the good times, they draw close to God, and in the tough times, they draw close to God, and they realize more and more that the good times are all gifts from God, and even the tough times, God is right next to them. And they learn that through going through trials and testing. They learn through the tests and trials of life, especially the downs, not just the ups, that their life needs God. Everything is dependent on Him. So the framework of grace, when it is seen, has this perspective. If I lose everything else and have Christ, I really have everything. And if I gain everything but don't have Christ, I've lost it all. That's the wisdom after you've gone through trials and testings throughout life. You realize what's really important and the one thing, the one true thing, Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, James says those are the two frames. They're the path to maturity 
uh, trials, and they reveal our need for God and his grace. Now he says we've got two battles. Okay? And the first battle, he talks about it like this. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Now that out hurts. Do you remember last week we talked about doubts? And, and I said doubts are inevitable and doubts, everybody has them and nobody is without doubt. Okay, and we have uncertainties. In fact, we see through a glass dimly, Paul says. We don't see face to face. We don't have absolute metaphysical certainty in this life. It's a leap of faith always. But I said, don't allow your doubts to stop you from believing because we all have them. This word, though, here in the way that James is referring to doubt, I think has more, well, I would say the real battle that he's talking about is despair. Don't despair. We get overwhelmed with the problems that are in front of us, and that's all we see. We can't see beyond the problems. We start to focus on the size of our sin rather than the size of our Savior. We look at the hole that we're in, and we're looking down rather than looking up and seeing the depth and height and breadth and width of the love of God and the promises of God that are true for us. We see the greatness of the obstacle in front of us rather than the goodness of God. It's kind of like putting a thumb in front of your face, and the closer you look at it, the greater it gets, and it blocks out everything else. But when you pull it back and you see it, In the midst of everything else, you realize the reality of how small it is compared to the greatness of God. So in the midst of trials and temptations, we have a huge battle with despair where we feel like I'm hopeless. This situation's hopeless. There is no way it can work out. It's impossible. God seems to major in the impossibles in life. Now the second battle Well, before I go on, this is one reason why, and we're going to keep talking about this, we're starting home huddles in August. We're kind of taking a break somewhat for the summer, but it's because we battle despair. We face this. We go through trials and temptations. We need others around us to help us to look up and to look out rather than to just get caught up in ourselves and self-focus. I think we also need home huddles, gatherings where we get, that's where the discipleship's really happening more than anywhere else, I think, is how we are with each other in the midst of this. But we also need it for our second battle that we face, and this comes up in this, and the way I label this one is misbelief, and we'll talk about what that means, where James writes this in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the first battle is despair. The second seems to be the opposite. It's where, oh, yeah, I got this. I can handle this. It's where we start to compare ourselves to others and because, hey, I'm rich. God must like me more than you. (laughs) I'm in good shape. 
It's where I look at my grade point and somehow believe my grade point reflects, you know, I got good grades, so I'm good morally. Do you understand how that works? Um, Or I am very sincere, much more so than others. We start comparing ourselves to others and we then start believing certain things and assuming things from it and we turn everything into works that I'm able to accumulate and I can feel good about myself. This is a fascinating point. I think I brought this up a long time ago um, but, and it's not in my sermon right now but I just thought about this again. The, the Pharisees trying to keep the law yo-yoed back and forth between these two, despair and misbelief. Some days, hey, I'm doing great. I've gotten this all down, feeling good about myself. I'm thank God I'm not like all those people. And then the next day is, oh, it's killing me. I can't, I, I messed up and I did this and I did that. Do, do you see yourself ever bouncing between the two? Yeah, well, that's the two battles that we face. And the reality of both battles is that they're two sides of the same coin. There are two battles with what we can say is pride, being self-focused. Whether I look at myself and see how good I am, or I look at myself and seeing how despicable I am, I'm still looking at myself. And that's why James writes, no. Don't go there. Those are the two battles you're going to face. And the solution is not, oh, stop doing it. (laughs) Stop that. (laughs) Isn't there a um, video about that with what Bob Newhart, uh, quote, counseling, you know, and, well, I've got this problem and I just can't, you know, and he goes, stop it. Just stop it. That is not what James says here. Don't just stop it. Stop it. Just stop it. He says, here's the solution. And he places before us the one outside of ourselves, our God and his goodness. And he says it this way, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He's starting to look at God's character and say, don't, Start looking at God, but don't believe he tempts you. His purpose in any trial or testing that comes is not so that you trip up and fall. He's not looking for you to trip up and fall. He is forging in you his character. He loves you and he is disciplining you. That's another way the Bible talks about this. He is bending you. It might feel like you're getting burned, but you are not being destroyed. You might feel the heat, but he is not killing you. He does nothing maliciously, nothing unintentionally, nothing vindictively, and nothing indifferently. He is passionately involved in your life to bring forth his greatness. And that's why James finishes this section with the good news that we've got. Don't be deceived, my brothers, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is a trite statement, but it's absolutely true. God is good all the time. 
all the time God is good. It's easy to say, in the midst of trials, in the midst of testing, in the midst of battles with misbelief, and in the midst of battles with despair, when you are able to speak those words, God is maturing you to see his goodness beyond the stuff going on here. And you know he is doing good in your life. Everything that is good is a gift from God. Everything is a gift. That's what grace says. That's the framework of grace. God is good. Look to him for his goodness. So the lunch you're going to eat in a few minutes, it's a gift of God coming down from the Father of lights. Uh, Got any friends? They're a gift of God. Do you have a spouse? Well, pastor, you do not know my spouse. Hey, still a gift of God. Hey, your spouse may be used to test you and try you, but God, it is still, that relationship is a gift from God, okay? God uses even the difficult situations as gifts to you to forge you to work in your life. You got eyes, you got legs, you got ears, you got, do you know, there is nothing you can name, nothing that isn't a gift from God to you. And that's your Father who gives you these gifts again and again. The other thing that we see in this text is there is no variation, no shifting shadows, it says. Notice that? God isn't fickle. He doesn't turn his grace on one day and turn it off the next. He doesn't, you know, you mess up, doesn't stop him from loving you, forgiving you, being gracious to you. Just because we're wishy-washy doesn't mean God is. He continues to bless you and smile upon you and look on you. He knows your own double-mindedness. He knows how you struggle and what you battle. He knows your deepest motives. He still has called you freely, that verse says. He calls you and he absolutely loves you. No questions, no loopholes, no exceptions, no exclusions. You are his, of his own free will. He does this. You know, like I've said, I think I've hinted at, there's a lot of immaturity in our culture and our society these days. Everything is glossy. Everything is quick and easy. We're on to the next thing. We drop and move on. If anything ever gets hard, we take, you know, the only, only easy stuff is good for us. And anything difficult is bad for us. That's the way our society has said, convenient, easy, new, and improved. And God says, not so quick. James says, no, wait a minute. It's not always the easy things that are good. Some of the most difficult things are best. And talk about difficult. Like I said in the book of James, James is reflecting on the life of Jesus. These words are exemplified by Jesus who counted it all joy. Hebrews 12, 3 says it this way, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus counted it all joy. And talk about a fiery ordeal. Sweating drops of blood, agonizing to the point of despair, but not despairing. Facing the sins of the entire world, being weighted down, being ridiculed, being abandoned by every human friend that he had, and even his father turns his back on him, and yet 
in the midst of all of that, Jesus does not despair, but says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The book of Hebrews along with this verse, we'll talk about that Jesus was made our perfect high priest, that he was perfected through suffering, which seems really odd because we think of perfection in a different way, but he was made the complete package for us. And I think the point of Hebrews and the point of trials and temptations, even in the life of Jesus who went through them all, the ultimate trials, the ultimate fiery ordeals, through them all is this, that Jesus went through the ultimate trials perfectly to be perfectly present in any of your trials in life. That's what we're saying today. You know, that's basically, you know, trials come. They will come. Count them all joy. God is good. And he's so good he went through it all for you. He loves you. He never will leave you. He doesn't change with your moods or temperament. He is for you and not against you. So today you might be saying to yourself, wow, ouch. Yeah, I see these battles. I've been caught up in this stuff. Well, what I want to do right now, I I don't do this often, but I think this might be good in a sermon like this. Why don't we all kind of bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment and just have a moment to think about this. Um, If you're here today and you're saying to yourself, you know, (sighs) I heard what he said. I'm in the midst of a battle with misbelief. I've been thinking way too much about myself and how good I am comparing myself to others and I'm trapped. I have this tenacious tendency to trust me, not God. If that's you, just kind of raise your hand right now. There's no need to be ashamed of that. But if you're here today and you're saying, I'm in the midst of a trial, John, and I hear you talking about it, but I'm fighting despair. I can only see the struggle, and I can't see anything else. I feel hopeless. If that's you, raise your hand. We understand. And if you've raised your hand for either of those, you can look up now. Could it be that God just had you here today because of his gracious will so that he could share with you right now, I am for you, I understand you, I love you, I know the battles you are facing. Trust me, look to me, I am good. Everything I am is for you, for your good. Yeah, I'm forging you. It's tough. I'm in it with you, but I'm making you something glorious. Today we're going to have a time of communion in just a couple minutes and we're going to have a couple people up front here. If you want to have someone pray with you over this or anything else, please do so. Okay? Use that time as well. And the time of communion itself where God, Jesus Christ, who suffered all, gone through it all, comes to you 
and gives himself to you and says, I'm for you. I'm here in the midst of the trials and temptations for your life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all um, who are here today who had, and those who had the courage to admit um, the battles with despair or misbelief. We thank you, Lord, that you are here with your full presence, your full spirit, yourself, who've gone through it all, who understands all these trials and temptations, who went through the fiery ordeal yourself and went through, through hell for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. These are not destructive, but constructive. And teach us, Lord, to trust you more boldly, more completely. Be present now in our lives. In the